All right, so here's what it says uh, in our review. And there should be a page that says review on it with a few slots. Do you see that? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gospel means good news. It starts with a messenger, John the Baptist, a guy who prophesied about two books in the Old Testament, more, but those specifically uh, are brought up in Mark. The book of Malachi, written 400 years beforehand, and the book of Isaiah, written 700 years beforehand. John came and baptized people the baptism of repentance. Repentance, metanoia, literally means to change your mind or thinking. John told the people he baptized with water, but there was one coming after me who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. The word baptizo or baptize literally means to immerse or saturate. John shows up and he's baptized by John. And he, as he is, the heavens uh, open up. The Father testifies from heaven, endorsing Jesus. And the Holy Spirit comes like a dove upon Jesus. The first time a dove is mentioned in Scripture, Genesis 8.8, when one is sent out to testify of a new and cleansed life to explore. Jesus, after letting the world know that he has come, disappears into the wilderness, where Adam and Eve were cast out. The Israelites wondered where David fled. It is the place where the old life dies and they transition into a new life. And the dove seems like a perfect example then. Adam took us from the garden to the wilderness. Jesus takes us from the wilderness to the garden. He is tempted for 40 days, the number often used in transitions or trials. And we see that with several examples there. And John now has been put in prison. And Jesus then begins thus his public ministry. He begins by calling some unlikely help. Jesus calls Andrew and Simon while they are casting their nets. And then he calls James and John while they are mending their nets. And that takes us to our wonderful and fun and exciting text, verses 21 to 28. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished by his teaching, for he taught as one having authority, not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did, did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when, an unclean, when the unclean spirit had convulsed him, cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region of Galilee. In other words, the result of all of this is this is how Jesus got famous. Boom, it's right there. Now, pray with me if you would, please. God, I just pray your word would just, you would captivate us and draw us in and that we would get it tonight. Every one of us, regardless of whether our brain is just a bunch of shards lying on a windy floor or whether it really is congealed and unified, God, today, break through all of that and speak to us. Let us hear you, God. You know where we've come from. You know what we're about, Lord, and you know what we need to hear, so speak into our lives tonight, I pray. Let tonight be an amazing night where we genuinely know you better, love you more, and God, that you would reveal yourself, your love for us and to us today. Lord, I pray you would immerse me in your spirit and that every one of us would be, we'd, we'd be in it tonight, that our minds and our hearts would be there, Lord, and Lord, regardless of how tired and how much the day has been, 
Lord, let tonight be a night where we were like, oh, I'm so glad I heard that. And Lord, in that, speak life into us, I pray. And reveal yourself for how real and beautiful and just how much you love us, God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I would say tonight, is it would any? Please don't just believe me. I mean, because I'm going to be talking about things that are going to go against a lot of Christian culture, perhaps. So I just want to warn you, you've got to use the word to test everything. I've never built doctrine on what I know the church used to do because I wasn't raised in the church. I went to a, a parochial school when I was younger and I got kicked out. Uh, I, I just asked a lot of questions. I was probably eight or nine. You know, when you're eight or nine, the questions you ask are legitimate questions, but you don't ask them with a lot of tact. You know, like, how come the priest is the only one who gets to get drunk? You know, genuine questions like that. Why do you light all those candles? Why don't you just turn on the lights? It's quicker. You know, I mean, as a kid, that made sense. They didn't like it. Anyways, all the reason to say that is, is that the things that I believe, I genuinely believe, just came because I was reading scripture, and I'm like, wow, that's what the Bible says. Well, think about this. The last thing we read was that Jesus called a group of disciples, four guys. Remember, disciple just means student. And they were all fishermen. And he says, follow me. He didn't tell them where. He didn't tell them what they were going to do. There was a, But understand, Jesus' command is a simple one. We make really complicated what God makes really simple. And what he said was, follow me. Now, the great thing is every question you could ask him at that moment could, will be answered if you just do what he told you. You can say, where are we going to go? If you followed him, you'd find out. What are we going to do? If you followed him, you'd find out. Well, what's it going to be like when I do? If you follow him, you'll find out. If you do what he simply asks you to do, the questions you have at this moment will get answered. That's the fun part. And you realize he makes it that simple so that even, if, if I dare say it, the dumbest person in the world can still follow him. It's really not a difficult challenge intellectually. The problem will not be our understanding. It will be our will, if we're just going to be honest. So where do we follow him to? You can imagine Jesus has got a to-do list, if you will. And he's like, well, guys, this is what we're going to do first. First box to tick, let's free a person from hell. Where are we going to do that? Church. A little weird, isn't it? Well, church in the day, which would be synagogue. The only miracle, by the way, that we could actually read about in Mark and Luke and not in Matthew. Now, here's what it says. First of all, in verse 21, that they came into Capernaum. That's where we start this. The town Capernaum is only mentioned three times in the Gospel of Mark, but it is so important that Matthew 9.1 calls it his own city. And, my, and Matthew 1.13 calls it the place that he lived. This is where he lived. That is important. I mean, when you're going to read this Jesus' city, you could think Jerusalem or even more so Nazareth. But as far as that's concerned, it's the city of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum, by the way, it's only about... 1,000 to 2,000 people. That's as, that's as big as it gets, just to give you an idea. So it's a tiny little place. The town, Kefir, to this day, Kefir means village. Now, you know, there's kind of like a hut, a neighborhood, a village. Where do we go from there? Sooner or later, we get to a city, if that makes sense, a suburb or whatever. And there are ways, historically, to discover, as far as the Romans are concerned, there are certain things that exist that make it so. I was just learning this. Do you know in English history, we could tell 200 years ago where were the bigger cities? Do you know that? In England? Do you know what to look for? No, you don't, do you? Now, I look at someone like Hugo or Deborah. I don't feel so bad for them because, well, they're not from here. There are other people here that 
you know, I could look at that. Well, if a, if a something was booming, so it was larger than a village, but it wasn't quite a city, you would find a cathedral there. But if it got to a city, a cathedral would turn into, does anyone know? A minster. York has a minster. Where's our minster? Thank you, it's in the West. It's Westminster. It's the minster. And the reason I say that is you could tell how big something is just by looking for the existence or the remains of one, because we've had a couple wars in between. Well, in Roman times, there was, as everything grew, you ever play SimCity? Or at least get the concept of that. It's kind of that idea. As things grow, they would add a theater. And as they grew larger, they would get an amphitheater. That means it was all the way around. Like the O2 could be considered an amphitheater, if you will. From there, it would go larger yet, and it would be a hippodrome where they would race horses. If you've ever seen Ben-Hur, that kind of thing exists. Hippos, by the way, means horse. Uh, the Greek word for river is potamos. So a, a river horse is a hippos potamos. Want to guess what word we get from that? Hippopotamus. That's the idea. So, and then it would be a university. If it was a really big place, there would be a theater, an amphitheater, and then this university and this hippodrome. Now, in Rome, we would assume Rome would be a rather large city. Can anyone tell me what the name of the large amphitheater is? Yeah, I was going to hope you get that one. It was the Colosseum. It's totally in the round. You get that. And the reason I say that is those were the things that existed. Capernaum had none of those things. It wasn't big enough to put a big theater in, was the idea. That gives you just some sort of idea. But it was the two major trade routes, both intersected there. From north to south, they called that the Via, Via Maris, which means the way of the sea. From east to west, to this day, it's called the Silk Route, or Silk Route, or Silk Road. Those two things met at Capernaum. And when you crossed over the Jordan, you actually, first city you went into or town you went into was this one. So kefer, like kefer, means village. But nahum, like the prophet Nahum, literally means comfort. So Jesus sets up headquarters in a place called the village of comfort. I think that there's something about that. He doesn't set up in Jerusalem, in a big city. He actually wants to set up in a place where people kind of know each other and he can start to actually have one-on-ones with people. It's amazing what Jesus calls success that man doesn't. Well, with that in mind, it's, it, was a fi- it was a fishing village. It existed for about 13 centuries, uh, 14 centuries from the one's first century uh, B.C. to 13 uh, centuries afterwards, uh, just to give you an idea. Uh, and it tells us, by the way, that in this town there was a uh, tax booth, and it would be a really good one because it's with two major trade routes, and that tax booth was, a re- was one that made a lot of money. Now, we do know one guy that's going to work at that tax booth. Does anyone know his name? Matthew. Yeah, Matthew's going to be at that tax booth. And that was guarded by a centurion. It was small enough that the whole place could be overseen by a small garrison, overseen by one centurion. This centurion, by the way, turns out to be a pretty decent guy. Because in Luke 7, 5, he's the one who shells out the cash to have this synagogue built. I think that's kind of an important note. So it wasn't even like a couple rich Jewish guys actually got together to build the synagogue. It was actually sponsored by Rome, for what it's worth. Now, it tells us here that Jesus goes into this town, and so much is going to happen here. This is where he's going to call Matthew. This is where his, um, Peter's mother-in-law lives. It's where Peter, uh, in essence, is where Jesus sets up his headquarters. And that's where the, the lame guy is let through the roof. 
All of that happens in this spot. It is also the place where he's going to raise Yeris' daughter. Huge. Lots of very noteworthy things are going to take place here. But it tells us the first thing he did. What is the first thing that Jesus did when he entered into this city or this town? Excellent. Nice job, Paul. Yeah. Now, this is huge. Now, this is a, it's an important note that if, Jesus, if this was a good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for us. You do know that any time you move to a new place, you kind of reinvent yourself a little bit. You kind of get that? No. For some of us, that's really good news. I mean, kind of came from a pretty rotten place, a whole new place with a whole new me. I'm all about that. The old me, let him die. But when you move into a new place, what I've found is, is that what Jesus always tends to do is he wants to make sure that the first place he goes is where God's people congregate. I know people that actually won't move into a neighborhood until they're confident there's a healthy church there that they can be a part of. I think that there's wisdom in that. Now, Jesus heads in there and it tells us that he entered the synagogue and he taught. Do you see that there at the end of the verse? Now, consider this. This guy shows up off the street and he just starts to teach. Seems a little weird, doesn't it? So I've given you, by the way, and I just kind of wanted to walk you through this quickly. But there are five basic things that take place in a synagogue service. Do you see that on your other sheet there? You'll have a picture of the synagogue on the top. Now, let me walk you through these quickly. And you can see, by the way, how a church gets their, their kind of liturgy from what happened in a synagogue. Does that make sense? So here we go. I'll ask you to repeat the names just because they're kind of fun. First word, by the way, is the word tefillim. Try that, tefillim. Nice. By the way, what that means is it's the public prayers. By the way, they were always sung. And they were led by a guy named Achatzan. Achatzan is a cantor. In other words... Often the way that it would work is the guy would sing a line and you'd sing it back. Like when we do, King most holy, show your glory here. And then you go, King most, it's called call and response. That's traditional. And understand, prayers are directed, a man's heart is directed to God. This is why the way, at least so you know, in our own thing, that's why we don't sing songs that are still really cool songs, but isn't like, Hey, guys, isn't it great to be saved? And, you know, things where it's like kind of nice, but we're not talking to God anymore. But the tradition here, at least in the synagogue, was it started with prayers, and they were directed to God, and they were sung. And you go, when we got together, one of the first things we did was like, God, isn't it great we're here? And we just want you to know you're awesome. That was the idea. That was the first thing. We did the Berachah, which means the blessings. We did the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. But we sang to God. And what we did was went, God, I just want to tell you I love you. That's supposed to be the idea of the beginning of that. That's Tefillim. You with me so far? Second thing, Amida. Try that. Amida. Amida means private prayers. That was a time that was left over for small congregations of people to get together and pray or individually to pray. That's what you did around your table. You did Adama. Does that make sense? That was your second thing. Third thing is a thing called Dushin Dushah. Try that. Dushin Dushah. Yeah, nice. Try that again. Dushin Dushah. That was so nice. Nice. Dushin Dushah, by the way, by the way, is the public reading of the word. And traditionally, by the way, for what it's worth, they read the Torah every year. They started in Genesis. And at the end of the year, they finished with the last chapter, if you will, in Deuteronomy, and the first chapter in Genesis, and did it every year over and over. 
until the 160s BC when this lunatic guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, that's the name he gives himself, by the way. Uh, Epiphanes means, in essence, God incarnate. They called him Epimenides, which means crazy guy. And uh, he just basically said this. He outlawed being Jewish. But he outlawed being Jewish the way that he understood Judaism. So he outlawed the reading of the Torah. But you're aware of the fact that the Old Testament contains a whole lot more than just the first five books, doesn't it? So what they did as a result of that is though the Torah was forbidden, the rest of the Bible, at that time the Old Testament, was still allowed. So they called it the Haftorah. We would call it the Prophets, if you will. Although it breaks up into two other books, actually. The History and the Prophets. And this is why you'll find often the term the Law and the Prophets. So when the Torah was outlawed, you read basically every other book and you called it the Prophets. You called it the Haftorah. But after uh, he was deposed after Antiochus Epiphanes was deposed, well, they just brought that in and they read them both. So every uh, service, every synagogue service, what would happen is the people would sing their prayers corporately, then they would pray privately as a small group or as individuals, and then there would be the public reading of the, if you will, of the Law and the Prophets. That was the idea. So that's our first three. You with me so far? Pretty simple. Then, and by the way, for what it's worth, it was sort of, there was a guy that was responsible to make sure that people read. He's still there to, that, to this day. The fourth thing was a thing called chatzah. There's a fun one. Chatzah. You try that. Try to spit, but not out, out of your mouth. Chatzah. Nice. And the word means encouragement or exhortation. Now, consider, could you imagine if, if this actually happened? The idea would be that the men as they were supposed to be the leaders, as they heard the reading of the word, would actually get convicted. This was the intent. That they would get convicted by what they heard, and they're like, you guys, I'm not doing that. We really need to do that like God said. Or, you guys, we're doing this, and God told us not to. We, and the idea is there's exhortation happening. The idea is that we're, we're not just going, oh, when's the word going to get over, and what do we do next, and when are the goodies coming out? But the idea was is we were listening to the word and trying to apply it from the moment we heard it. Could you imagine if that took place, what, what that would be like? Now, the problem is sometimes when you open it up like that, there are other people who are they're going to take it and they're entirely like, you know, you know, guys, what I think is we all need to kill Trump. And it's like, no, no, the scripture didn't say that. You know, it's amazing, but... If we were really true to it, chetzal would be, it would be such an amazing thing because we would be listening to the word and going, God, am I doing this or am I not? And then the last thing is a thing called lepach. Try that, lepach. And lepach means doctrinal teaching. So we sang, then we privately prayed, then we publicly read the word, then we're like, whoa, how do I get exhortation? And we were like, we should do this. Then... We, we, we went from reading to exhortation to doctrine, where like somebody stood up and they taught very much like I'm doing right now, would be the idea. Only traditionally, the teacher sat and everyone else stood. My guess is because the teacher is least likely to fall asleep. Anyways, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul, by the way, doesn't disqualify this. In 1 Timothy 4.12, when he's writing to Timothy, you know what he says? He says, give yourself over to reading exhortation and doctrine. I think that's important because those are three, four, and five. The shin, the and Those are lepach. Those are the things he says. You should continue doing that. Now, by the way, for those things to happen the way they should be happening here, means he actually has to be in fellowship. 
No, look at you can sing, you can put on headphones and sing. Oh, lots of guys do that down my street. It's rather funny. They put on their bike, yeah, they get on their bike, they throw on their headphones, and they're like, oh, baby, baby, as they're riding by. And then, of course, they always sound like you're strangling a goose or something. You know, you can hear that, but it's like, and you can have, and you can have really amazing moments where there's music that really ministers to you. It's good Christian music, good worship music, and you're kind of in your room, and you put it on, and it's just kind of you and the Lord, in essence, you're kind of dancing with God. It's a really cool thing. But we're told not to forsake the assembling of believers. Jesus shows us that here, because what he does is as soon as he gets to Capernaum, the first thing he does is he makes sure that he's in fellowship. I think that's important. If it's, if it's good enough for God, it should be good enough for us. It tells us this, and this is such an important verse, In the book of Proverbs, chapter 18, verse 1, it says, A man who seeks to isolate himself only seeks his own benefit and rages against all reason. In other words, let's face it, I'll be honest, I'm one of those guys, when things get really weird or, well, you know, there's some people when they get sick, it's like the show is on. Have you seen those people? They're like, "Ah, I'm so sick. And they want everybody to know it. I saw a guy like that on the bus. Maybe he just wanted his seat because the moment he played that up, everyone got out of his way and he sat down where he wanted. But then there are other people where things, you kind of get hurt or you get weirded and all you want to do is crawl in a cave and be by yourself. And I get that. And God says, look, at, I, I recognize that that's built within you, but you weren't created for that. You were created for fellowship. And if you really do want to isolate yourself, God says there's two things you need to know. One, as much as you may think you're doing everyone else a favor, it's still selfishly motivated. And it really is about you. And the second thing is, it's really not a very sane choice to make. That's what he's telling us. Well, anyways, with all of that, we are not to forsake the assembling of believers. I'm preaching to the choir. Look at we're here on a Wednesday night doing this. But Jesus heads into the synagogue and this is what he does. They ended it, by the way. They ended their synagogue. And the, the, um, the person would be able to stand up and he would say for what it's worth, um, and it means may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord lift up the countenance of his face to you and give you peace or what we might call the Birkat Kohanin or the priest's blessing or Aaron's blessing from number six. So they would, in essence, you were left by the guy going, and be blessed. God bless you guys, was the idea. And that was a service. But the synagogue was not just a place where people went and had church, if you will. It was also the place where they had a town meeting. It was the place where, and, and understand the idea behind it, it was the place where the city got together so they could talk about roads and they can talk about how to handle what bridges to build. They could talk about what to, how to handle things if there was a, a, you know, there was a flood or there was a drought. Now, do you know the same thing happened here? Did you know that? Did you know years and years and years and years ago, the church was the place where people met to have their actual meetings for political reasons. But please understand why. The idea was supposed to be that God was still supposed to preside over it. So the decisions we made were supposed to be surrendered to God to lead. 
But unfortunately, you know what happens. You forget about whose house it is, and you just make it whatever you want. And the church got really upset about the idea that the world now was taking over the church, so they made sure that you couldn't have dances or those kind of things in churches. Do you know how, you, how they did that? They installed permanent fixtures to make sure. And we call them pews. Because you can't have a dance with a whole bunch of pews screwed into the floor, can you? But the idea was simple. That we were supposed to assemble in a place where God was still supposed to lead us as a nation. Here and in America, that was supposed to be the case. So instead, we couldn't meet anymore in this public place to meet, this public meeting house that was the church. So now we had our own public meeting houses. What do you call a, what's short for public meeting house? Pub. That's where it moved to. So the people that were once meeting in the church now had to find another place where God was not welcome at all. And that's where the pub came in. That was the idea. Now today, I might say we're moving away from the pub. We have something new. It's called a coffee house. But it's basically the same thing, only it's a different drug being served. But you get the idea. And the whole point was, when Jesus shows up, he wasn't just showing up in a building that all they did was have church. The whole community, especially for the 1,000 or 2,000 people, they knew that was the place where people got together. Because synagogue, by the way, literally just means to assemble together. That's what the word means. So Jesus shows up there, and they kind of go through this, you know, the service, if you will. They do their tefillim, they sing their prayers, they do the amidah, their private prayers, they do the public reading of the word, the deshin deshah. Jesus did that in Nazareth, if you remember, in Nazareth, when he actually read from Isaiah, rolled it up and said, today, and you're hearing this is fulfilled, he went and did the reading of the, of the prophets, the haftorah, and then he closed it up and started with chatzah. This is what I recommend, you need to know. It's happening right now. And Jesus stands up to teach the lepach. He does the teaching part. And as he does the teaching part, the strangest thing happens here. This particular synagogue, by the way, most, most synagogues usually have three, four doors. This one has 12 doors. It's a little odd, and it faces Jerusalem. Oh, that would make sense. But notice before we meet the other star of this particular text, look at verse 22. Because God wants to make something really clear to us. It says they were astonished. Literally, the word means to be smacked in the face in amazement is the idea. At his teaching, we might say they marveled, but that word has another connotation. And he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Now notice, what we read is the people were so amazed because in other words, Jesus showed up at the church and you know what they said? This is not like we're used to here at church. That's what they're saying. And you know what was different? Was his teaching. Notice that. Before any miracles took place, he wasn't raising the dead or turning water into wine here. What Jesus was doing was he was teaching and his teaching floored them. They were like, what? What? I've never heard anything like this. And it wasn't that Jesus used really cool analogies or he had PowerPoint or, I mean, let's face it, this is God in the flesh. He could have done like holograms in front of them. Let me show you what the flood really looked like. And he could have shown us the literal scene. Imagine that teaching. But what it was, was that Jesus taught with authority. Now, please hear me in this. I remind you, Jesus goes to take us from the wilderness back to the garden. And when God made Adam in the garden... And he blessed him and his wife. He said this, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. When God blessed them, he gave them two simple things, to be fruitful and authoritative. And when they bit into their sin, they lost their authority. 
and they really haven't seen it much since. But now God steps on the, uh, into the church, if you will. And this is the living word speaking the word. How can that not be authority? The question is, what did the scribes do that made them sound like they didn't have authority? Because notice it says that he taught him as one having authority, not like the scribes. Well, that's a simple understanding. That means the scribes taught not like they had authority. The scribes, by the way, interestingly enough, were actually considered the intellectuals of Judaism. I don't know if you knew that. And what they had done is they had studied the great teachers or what they would call sages or rabbis that have come before. Predominantly two guys, Shammai and Hillel. But in the end of it all, what they would do is they would say, well, here in this text, Hillel might say this, but Shammai might say this. Now today you can find guys like that too. They'll say, well, Spurgeon says this, and Billy Graham might say this, and this great teacher might say this. And here's the funny thing. They sound so smart. But what the people don't think is that they're just smart. The people see a person without authority. That's what they see, interestingly enough. Don't you find that strange? Though they're brilliant, and they're like, well, the church fathers have gone in this direction. And, and I'm not saying that stuff's not as bad. I'm saying it just doesn't give you authority. Jesus isn't quoting anybody but the scripture here. And they're like, wow. Now, don't miss this. This is what is established before we meet the other guy. Is that what they're used to is a service with no authority. They're used to all kinds of heady stuff going in and all kinds of smart talk. But in the end of it all, it's just kind of like a person showing off, if you will, but it isn't reaching any hearts. And in the end of it all, they kind of look and go, well, that guy really, you know, well, let me say it this way. My daughter just started going to public school this year. Her very first day, her first field trip, she went to a mosque. Imagine her surprise. Imagine my surprise. But before she went to the mosque, she went to a theology center. A man with a collar stood up and spoke. While he's speaking, Ruthie is texting me. Now, probably busting her for saying that. But she said, this guy is a pushover. Now, he was representing Anglicanism, and then again, I, he's not every facet of being an Anglican. By any means, he's not that. But he was representing something. But he was so busy not offending anyone, he had no authority. He's like, in other, she said, he would be really good at leading a neighborhood watch. Because what he was basically saying is, can't we all just join hands and make our neighborhood a better place? Take a look at yourself and make the change. Now, the reason I say that is, she looked at him and she's like, and then after that, they went to the mosque. And I says, what did you think of the guy that led there? And she goes, he was confident, he was academic, and he believed what he believed, and he was unapologetic about it. She goes, whether he was right or wrong, I have more respect for him than I do the other guy. And I don't blame him. And then she said the one thing that I will more than likely die remembering, even if I go see now, some of you can argue whether that's happened already. She said, the first guy, I just had a hard time believing that he actually believed in anything. And you could be so busy trying to be smart that you're quoting everybody that you don't even know what you believe anymore. Jesus did not have a problem telling you what the truth was. Was it going to offend people? You bet it's going to offend people. 
But even though it offended people, he wasn't going to compromise on it. So here's where we start this, and then we meet our really fun confrontation. It started with this. Jesus shows up in Capernaum. <clears throat> excuse me, Capernaum. He, in essence, then he heads immediately to church as soon as he can. The first, the first uh, Sabbath. In our case, we would say the first Sunday. You know, and in, in their case, because they met on Shabbat on Saturday, the first chance he gets, he goes there. And as he goes there, he he teaches. And as he teaches, as as he teaches. The people are amazed because they're like, this guy teaches like no one we've heard before. We've heard guys playing smart. We've heard guys quoting each other and starting their own circles. But this guy, it seems like the scripture goes through him and not just like he's gathering it to throw it at us. There's something about him that's different and it's that he has authority. And by the way, when you read scripture and you just believe it for what it is, it is amazing the footing it gives you. And people are like, well, I just think that there might be this or this. I'm like, actually, it's kind of pretty simple here. And it's the simplicity is what makes it beautiful. Now, it's in the middle of this, it tells us in verse 23. Now, there was a man in the synagogue, in their synagogue, with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. Now, I don't know about you, but isn't there a weird thing to think this guy's been in church, in essence, and he's been seems to have been quiet until Jesus showed up, and now he freaks out? I don't know how long he's been there. But isn't it kind of weird to think that this guy could be there and be quiet and now all of a sudden he's freaking out? Why is he freaking out now? Why wasn't he freaking out before? Well, it's pretty simple. The reason why is because Jesus showed up. And if Jesus isn't there, no power in hell is going to have a problem with it. Religion doesn't frighten the hell. Demons aren't frightened by religion. And hear me on this. They're not even frightened by spiritual experience. The issue is not whether someone can speak in a tongue. The issue is whether Jesus is there. And that's a really important place to go with this. This guy cries out, but notice, by the way, that in verse 23, God does not let us see him first as a demoniac. What's the first thing in verse 23 that God calls him? A man. He doesn't say, and now there was a demoniac. There's a crazy guy. There was a lunatic. He says, there was a man. Now, we as people, we'd probably see him that way. Oh, like, there's the crazy guy. There's that demon guy. There's the, there's the violent guy. There's the addict. There's the insane whatever. There's the menace to society. That we put labels on people like that. But God goes, you need to recognize, first thing this guy was is a man. He was born by a mother like other people was. And a mother held him and looked and had saw promise. He was just a little baby boy who grew into something infinitely greater. And unfortunately, very dark. And here he was, silent. And then Jesus starts to stand up. And this guy starts to pipe up as a result of it. It is amazing when the truth goes out, how quickly distraction pops up. How, if you know what I mean. Now, notice, by the way, it's very telling what he does say. Please hear me in this. Because if we took this to heart, I think we'd realize an awful lot. Well, first of all, read this with me. Verse 24. This man says, leave us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? What do all three of those statements have in common? What's that? Man, Paul, you are on it. All three cases, the guy speaks in... 
Yeah, nice. The guy speaks in plural. Have you noticed that? But notice, by the way, God doesn't say that. Back in the verse before, there was a man, a single man, who had the Spirit. Here, it says, leave us alone. What have we to do with you? Have you come to destroy us? But notice it says then, I know who you are, the Holy One of Israel. And Jesus rebuked him and said, be quiet and come out of him. See the singulars. Let me make it as simple as I can. Every decision God makes, everything he does, only has a single motivation to it. Everything God does is about drawing you to him. That's everything. Every decision he makes is about bringing you closer to him. Every, every movement he makes, every situation he allows in your life is to bring you closer to him. Everything he does is to use you to draw you closer or to use you to draw someone else closer or both. Everything the enemy does is the opposite. It's really that simple. All he wants to do is drag you away from God. And I understand why. I was born in Chicago and I learned something in an early age that if you really want to see someone hurt, you go after their family. You can take on the guy, and the guy might fight you until he dies. You could torture him to death, but you go after it. And how many of the movies are about that today? Where it's like, they're not actually going after the guy anymore. They kidnap the guy's daughter or his wife, and he has to go and rescue him, because that really means something still to our society. And the reason I say that is, is that the enemy, the reason you're so important to the enemy is simple. He knows more than you do how much God loves you. And he knows if he really wants to hurt God, he's going to have to hurt you to do it. And everything he does is about drawing you away. It's that simple. Look at the three things that this guy believes that he speaks in the plural. And if I go backwards, the last is, you've come to destroy us. It's like, he's like you know, God's only here to, to, to ruin you. He's here to destroy you. The middle thing, what do we have to do with you? In other words, you have nothing in common with them, and therefore what? Leave them alone? Don't, don't go near God? And wasn't that the conclusion he started with? Leave us alone. That's how this whole thing is. And understand, this is what the enemy does in your life. Oh, you're so faulty, God doesn't want to be with you. So you might want to leave. Well, unfortunately, people buy this lie. And yet, here is Jesus reaching out to this individual. And this guy is absolutely convinced that all Jesus is there to do is to destroy him. Now, you probably know that. Because at some point in your life, you may have believed that or you've tried to share with somebody else and they believe that. Where you're like, hey, you know, I just want you to know God really loves you. And they're like, God doesn't love me. What he wants to do is stop me from doing everything I like doing. Put a bunch of laws on my life. Stick me in a bunch of traditions. And make me sort of a mindless robot. I can't believe how many people think that. I have never been so free. I have never been so alive. And I've never been so full of joy. And it didn't come because I just got older. It came because I got set free. Because Jesus did destroy. But what he destroyed was my bondage. But what the enemy wants to say is, look at you have nothing in common with God. And therefore, why even approach him? Because if he did, he'd just destroy you anyways. So you'd be better off leaving him alone. And that's where this guy is at. Are you there tonight? 
Because I want you to recognize, even though this guy has completely bought that lie, Jesus isn't going to let him leave that way. He's not going to let you leave tonight thinking somehow that all God's here to do is to destroy you. God's here to save you, make you whole, give you a life like you couldn't possibly imagine, give you love like you couldn't even possibly imagine could exist. This enemy says this, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And the Holy One of God, unique, different, is the one who, by the way, is calling you individually. There's no we in this. He's calling you individually and saying, I want you. But in the end, this demon has declared war on God, and the way that he's doing it is by convincing a man that God has no interest in him other than for his own destruction. And there's the problem. So what does Jesus do? He rebukes him and tells him two things. One, shut up, and second, get out. He's like, the first thing Jesus wants to do is let the enemy know he has no right to talk here. What the Holy One of God wants to do in your life is make you whole. And he wants you to draw, he wants you to draw near to him. And even the hardest and most demanding situations in your life are there for you to rely on him. The three girls that I love the most, my wife and two children, I've lost. I've come to seeing all three of them within inches of death within a six-month period. And if it weren't for the Lord, I wouldn't have made it. But at a moment like that, it is amazing how the accuser steps up. Where is your God now? And I understand why Jesus would say, shut up to the enemy. This man has been listening to your lies too long. And now, get out. And with that, the unclean spirit convulses him, cries out with a loud voice, and comes out of him. And the people's response to that is they're amazed again. Now, I imagine they've probably never seen anything like this in church. And they question among themselves. The word question, for what it's worth... Sudzetio literally means to investigate. They're like looking at each other and going, hey, you guys, what in the world is this? What new teaching doctrine doctrine is this? Because he has authority in both places. He has authority in what he says, and he has the authority in what he does. What kind of crazy teaching is this? This is real Christianity. It's not about just experience, and it's not just about talk. But what he says is truth, and what he does is true. And immediately as a result of it, his fame spread throughout the region around Galilee. It ends with Jesus becoming really, really famous. as the one who, by the way, has total authority in Scripture, and the one who has total authority over the spiritual world. Hear me on this. And I'm going to give, I just want to build on this for a moment, and then we're going to pray. And as we pray, we're also going to pray for a young man named Spence as well. Spence? Sorry? Your son. Really? Okay. We're going to lift him up too. Interesting, and even in this story. Now look at not because if a person convulses, it isn't because he's demonized. There's no doubt about it. This man it was. My sister is an epileptic. I understand that. 
this issue that Jesus has to deal with is a very real issue, and it's an issue we don't like to deal with. Some churches love to actually spend all their time on it. Three different times in the book of Mark, Jesus is going to address a person who's possessed. Chapters 1 here, chapter 5, one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture, and in chapter 7. Interesting, when Luke speaks about it, a man has to be healed. It's associated with madness in John 10. It's associated, because they say, aren't you like a demon-possessed man? It's associated with all kinds of tremendous physical ailments as well. And let's face it, if hell tries to possess you, how in the world could that not have damage to you? Jude, chapter 1, because there's only one chapter in Jude, verse 6, it tells us that there were angels who left their proper domain. They left their place with God to go and serve the enemy. And it tells us in 2 Peter 2.11 that they're greater than men. However, there's a couple things you need to know. In Ezekiel 28.15, God makes clear even the devil himself was created. He is a created being, and God is not. So he's not intimidated. And the moment you say yes to Jesus, God himself comes and lives inside of you. And everything changes. We don't read how any person gets possessed in all of this. What we do read is people do get that way, but we never, ever, ever, ever read that a person who ever accepts Christ ever has that situation in their life. It tells us this instead in 1 John 4, 4. You're of God, little children, and have overcome them because he was in you is greater than he who was in the world. Now this is what it says in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. That Jesus died for our sins, was buried and rose again, and ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father, and is above every principality, power, might, dominion, and anything that could be named. He is fully in authority over all of that. And then in chapter 2 of Ephesians, it says that you, the moment you said yes to Jesus, you were buried with him. All of those. The guilt and the shame and regret all gets buried with him. And you have a whole new life that he raises with you. And you get seated in Christ. Simple math. Jesus is seated at the right hand above all of that stuff. And the moment you say yes to Jesus, you're seated in Christ. So where are you at above all that stuff? That's a simple thing. So when people start talking about crazy stuff, they need to go to Scripture and not just to Hollywood to figure out their doctrine. But in this, please understand, everything God does is to draw you to Him. And He wants you tonight. And He wants all of you. And the enemy wants to pull you away. He'll do that through struggles. He'll do that through challenges. But the one thing He does more than anything is He lies and accuses. That's it simple. When something doesn't work out the way you like, he'll say, well, see, God's not what you thought he was. Interesting, because the first 52 times, the entire time the word possess is used in the Torah, by the way, it's only used about people possessing land. It's about take the land, it's yours. And the moment you say yes to God, you're, what you're saying is the same. You're saying this now, take this, God, it's yours. Live here now. And as you do that, load it all of healthily. There is a warning in Luke 11, 24 about a man who was possessed and he tells us that such a person if it was a spirit was driven from them and it doesn't even say how a person gets there but it does say that any Christian in their right mind could actually stand against that and it could be done 
But it says, that demon goes, and he's just looking for another place to settle. If he comes back and the house, hear me, is clean and swept in order, he'll go and get actually seven worse than himself, and the condition of the guy will be worse than it was before. Well, think of it this way. You have a place. You have an apartment. And as you have an apartment, there's a squatter. And you drive out the squatter. But as you drive out the squatter, you clean up the house and you make it nice and you put in new furniture and you put in nicer furniture. And then you leave and he comes back and realizes the place is even nicer than it was before. Well, while he's gone, he gathered up a handful of other squatters. And now the condition of the apartment will be worse than it was before. And you see this with life where it's like there's a bad thing in my life. I'm an addict in this or I hate this or this is a horrible area. And I just want it out of my life. And we're trying to get the squatter out of our apartment. Does that make sense? But the issue is not just getting the thing out. It's getting a new tenant. And the idea is, is that when you say yes to Jesus, he comes and lives inside. That was what was missing in the Luke text. Is the Spirit's driven, but when he comes back, it may be swept in an order, but it's still vacant. And there's the problem. And yet, God says, if you're willing to just say yes to me, I will come and dwell inside of you. And everything changes from the inside out. So when the enemy comes back and knocks at your door, just turn into the new landlord and say, hey, it's for you, and the the deal's done. There's the beauty in it. So please hear me in this. Jesus shows up in Capernaum. The first thing he says to four guys, four very average, normal, hardworking guys, and he looks at them and he says, you guys, follow me. He doesn't tell them where. He doesn't tell them what they're going to do. And they follow him. And the first place he seems to show up is in a place called a village of comfort, where he shows up in a place that's supposed to be a public meeting for God. And the guy who's possessed there, and he freaks out because he's convinced if God's in the room, he's going to get destroyed. And Jesus says two things. Shut up and get out. To the evil spirit. You've lied enough, and you don't belong here. And as he leaves, this man now is changed forever. And imagine, what would it be like to be one of those four guys? And you're like, I thought I would follow you, Jesus. I had no idea this is what was going to happen on my first day in school. This is my first day in school. I can hardly wait to see what's on the second day. And he is going to lead. And what we're going to get in the simplest of it, please hear me, because ministry, again, is so simple. If I can get you to Jesus, he can fix you. And I'm convinced of that. I don't have to even know what your problem is. I know the one who fixes them. And he is an all-problem fixer. As we go to prayer, let me ask you. I'm not asking, have you cleaned up your house or have you swept it and put it in order? I'm asking, who lives there? Is it still vacant? Is it still empty? You feel like, well, my house is, my life's a little bit more in order. But are you letting God live where he created you to He created you to be the place he lives. Is he making himself at home in you? Are you so busy trying to clean up the house that you're not letting him in? Tonight, please understand, Jesus wants to actually come and live inside of you and he wants to be your peace and your rest and your strength and your hope. Things you really can't get in any lasting way elsewhere. As we pray, I'm going to give you a chance to say yes to this living God. But I'm going to go beyond that. I'm going to invite God just to go and make himself at home in us. And look, we don't have to understand everything. We just have to be willing to say yes. And then we're going to lift up Teresa's son, Spence, as well. 
that God would reveal himself. I do know this. Scripture says in Second Chronicles that the eyes of the Lord span the earth seeking to show himself strong to those whose hearts are loyal to him. Now, he could show himself strong by completely delivering Spence. We can all agree that would be a really cool thing. Or he can show himself strong by giving him the strength to endure and show him to the other side of this. One way or another, I know God wants to show himself strong. And not just to Spence, but also to Teresa as well. And to us in it. That's the beauty of it. So, please, you take the moment now. Let's pray. God in heaven, I want to give you this day and lay this before you and recognize so much of the enemy in that spiritual world has been so sensationalized by Hollywood that it just seems like the church has just bit into it and not realized what the truth is that your scripture makes clear. You've made it so simple. Tonight, for whatever reason, you've brought every person in here. Some if it be out of duty or respect or care. Some out of the excitement of just coming and being part of the study. Some because there are circumstances that are tugging on their hearts that have driven them in here. One thing is clear and evident. You wanted them in this room tonight to hear this. And you are calling out to them right now. Calling out to them by name to do more than just have a foxhole confession. More than just casually call upon you in a moment to fix a small problem or a huge problem. But to hand themselves to you. To let you have permission to come in and live and make yourself at home in us. To take our hearts and make them pure and right. And to take our lives and let them shine because you live there. And tonight in this room and at the sound of this voice, if you recognize this, I don't have to convince you it's true. God's already doing that right now. And if that's you, I want to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen so you know what I'm saying. And at the end, if you agree, I simply ask you to say amen. And what you're saying is, okay, I agree. I've heard the prayer. Let those be my words now. And here's the prayer. God, I am not perfect. You know it and I know it. I've done wrong, thought wrong, felt wrong. You know that. But you love me and want me. And has paid for all of that by sending Jesus to die on the cross. And when he did, my bill was paid. My guilt was punished. And just like scripture promised, he died on that cross. He was buried and on the third day he rose again. And as he was seen by people, many people, he shows us that there's a whole new life. With him now, not just as Savior, but as Lord. And if really what you want to do is make my life right, put at peace what isn't, to give me joy in exchange for my, my grief, to give me love, Give me hope where it's been hopeless. 
to give me that rest that only comes at coming with you. If that's what you really want to do, I say yes. Jesus, please take over this life. It's in shambles. And make it something beautiful. I hand myself to you. Confessing Jesus, confessing you as my Lord and Savior, have my life. And make it amazing as you intend to. In your name I pray. If you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen.